Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. My name is Katrina Anderson, and I am a host on the New Books Network's African American Studies. Today, I will be joined by Professor Gregory Nobles, and we will discuss his new book, The Education of Betsy Stockton, An Odyssey of Slavery and Freedom. Professor Nobles is an emeritus history professor from the Georgia Institute of Technology and a historian who has written extensively on the era from the American Revolution to the Civil War. He is also the author and as well as co-author of several books, including John James Abaddon, The Nature of the American Woodsman. Good morning, Professor Nobles. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Good morning, Katrina. It's good to be here with you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Today, so as we're getting into the life of Betsy Stockton, would you mind telling us a little bit about the book? I'd be happy to. Um, And her life is a fascinating one. Uh, It's really quite a remarkable life. And if you can just bear with me, I'll give you a brief synopsis. Uh, And it will be, I hope, very brief. Uh, Betsy Stockton was born in Princeton, New Jersey around 1798. We have to put a question mark on the 1798 because a lot of her basic biographical information was not uh, reported. Uh, She was born into slavery, and she was born into the household of Robert Stockton, who was one of the most prominent men in Princeton in the 18th century, and also a slaveholder. When she was a child, she was given to Robert Stockton's daughter, Elizabeth Stockton Green, who was the wife of Ashville Green, Uh, again, a Princeton graduate, uh, a pastor at Philadelphia's Second Presbyterian Church, and a man who would later become president of Princeton, or the College of New Jersey, as it was called at the time, but now Princeton University. Betsy Stockton lived in Green's household for the first, really about the first 20 years of her life, first uh, as an enslaved child, and then at some point, I think by about 1810, Green emancipated her, but not completely uh, from servitude. Uh, She was, I think, no longer a slave, kept as a slave, but in some form of servitude. And Green maintained his authority over her until she was about 20 years old. But then in 1822, she goes off to Hawaii on a whale ship with a group of Christian missionaries. She was the first single woman, the first black woman, to go to Hawaii as a missionary. She becomes very good friends with a two of her fellow missionaries, Charles and Harriet Stewart. And she stays there for two and a half years in Hawaii, teaching. Then 
she and the Stewarts come back to the United States because Mrs. Stewart is sick. They go to Cooperstown, New York. Then Stockton gets an offer for a job to teach at an infant school, a school for two to five-year-olds in Philadelphia. She does that for a couple of years, goes back to Cooperstown, and then she, in 1833, she goes to Princeton. And I'll pause here and say that uh, my friend David Blight, in writing about Frederick Douglass, says that Douglass is probably the most well-traveled black man in the 19th century. Uh, I think Betsy Stockton might, been a, might have been one of the most traveled black women uh, in the Annabellum era, certainly somebody who was born into slavery. At any rate, Betsy Stockton comes back to the place of her birth, Princeton, in 1833, and spends the rest of her life there. She becomes a very important figure, institution builder in the black community in Princeton, uh, founder, uh, founding member of the Witherspoon Street Presbyterian Church, and also the founding and sole teacher in Princeton's one public school for black children. And she remains an important figure in both of those institutions, the church and the school, throughout her time in Princeton until her death in 1865. So she spans really the whole antebellum era, uh, a little bit into the Civil War, and I think she is one of those remarkable characters, somewhat unsung, uh, but nonetheless very, very significant in her own community. And that's what I think found really striking about her story, the outlines of her life. So why did you select Stockton as your topic for the book? How did you become interested in her? I have to give some credit, much credit, frankly, to, to my wife. Uh, we visit Princeton quite a bit because our daughter and son-in-law and two grandkids live there. So we go to commit to the town fairly frequently, as much as we can. And one time we were there, and my wife, Ann Harper, happened to walk down Witherspoon Street into what was in the 19th century, and still is pretty much, the black community in Princeton. Not a big town, only about four blocks from the main part of the uh, campus. But she saw this plaque that outlined the life of Betsy Stockton, and since I'm an antebellum historian, she said, you should take a look at that. And I did, and I became fascinated. Uh, the, the outlines of the story just contained in the, the plaque out in front of the Witherspoon Street Presbyterian Church really interested me. It, it, it hooked me, and it got me to work on this book, trying to figure out if I could tell a fuller story of Betsy Stockton's life beyond what was included on that simple plaque, and frankly, what was included already in a little bit, and I say a very little bit, of the secondary literature. You use the term Odyssey in the subtitle. Was that intentional? Very much so, and I think with a special notion of what Odyssey means. You know, quite often the term Odyssey becomes a throwaway just for a long journey for travel. Somebody takes an Odyssey somewhere, and it takes a long time. But I'm using Odyssey here in a way that Homer used it in talking about Odysseus and coming back from the Trojan War. And that is, yes, it's a long journey. It's a long period of travel, but punctuated and defined, I think, by threats, dangers, obstacles. And that's what makes the journey fascinating, not just going from point A to point B, but having to deal with all those threats along the way. And that's how I see Betsy Stockton's life. She went to a lot of places, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, but in each case, 
in each case, she was dealing with the overriding obstacles of uh, gender and racial discrimination. And so I think the odyssey for her is a long one. And it's one that has its, uh, its, its ensemble of dangers, I'll call it that. As someone who studies black women's experiences in early America, how difficult was it retracing Stockton's life? Whose work did you build on to craft this narrative? Well, I'll say first a word about the difficulty. Yes, it was difficult tracing Stockton, Betsy Stockton's life, because she didn't leave very many papers written in her own hand, didn't leave much in her own voice. Uh, there was a journal she kept while she traveled to Hawaii, uh, a couple of letters, and after that, just a few scraps, but not very much at all. And I think we all know, and I think Sadia Hartman has made this very clear, that the archives for uh, people of color, and especially women, uh, is very limited. We've got plenty of documents about famous white male figures, but not much about other people. And so I found doing the work on Betsy Stockton's life a bit of what I call sometimes the historical detective work. And I was inspired particularly by, I think, two works, uh, or two authors anyway. One of my old friend, uh, long-time uh, uh, friend, Al Young, who unfortunately has passed a few years ago. But Al wrote a couple of books, one about a, uh, a common man in Boston, Robert, George Robert Twelves Hughes, and one about uh, a woman in the Revolutionary War, Deborah Sampson. And Al's books became a model for me of finding evidence uh, about people, not so much by them. And then I had the very good fortune, as I was working on this book, to uh, to read Erica Armstrong Dunbar's remarkable book uh, about Ona Judge. And that became, I think, not so much a model, but a work that I very much respected. And again, her work gave me sometimes uh, the sense of possibility. If one can write a book about Ona Judge, a woman who apparently never learned to read or write, uh, but a woman who was in the, uh, the, the thrall of the Washington family, uh, then perhaps I could do something about Betsy Stockman, who wrote a little bit, and who was in the thrall of uh, Ashville Green and other uh, people in Princeton. So we all, I think, look to models, resources from other, other scholars. Uh, not that we imitate them, not that we can duplicate them, but sometimes it's just reassuring, just refreshing to see that somebody else has done it and one hopes it can be done again. Very true. What about the sources for your texts? Um, how difficult it was it to find those facts? As you mentioned, she kept a journal as she was going to Hawaii, there's a couple of letters, so there's like grains, but actually to extract the narrative and create the remarkable book that you did. How were you able to do that? Well, for lack of a better term, I talk sometimes about the process of triangulation, and that is reading, finding what somebody else said about Bessie Stockton or what was happening in her larger environment at the time she lived there, and then trying to read that, but read that with a degree of 
skepticism uh, or read it a little bit against the grain. And, and what I mean is, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, most of what we know about Betsy Stockton's early life comes from one source, Ashbel Green, who kept a very, very extensive diary, which is uh, mercifully now all typed up and housed in the Princeton uh, Library Special Collections. But it's Green talking about Stockton. And there are times when I say you can read Ashbel Green differently. It's not what he says, but you can imagine a different uh, set of circumstances. And I think this is true throughout uh, my research, throughout, frankly, uh, all the sources that deal with it. People talk about Betsy Stockton, usually in very favorable terms, I have to say. Uh, but I think also there's uh, a, a need to approach these other sources with some degree of care, as I said, with skepticism, and to think about perhaps alternative meanings, not just what Ashbel Green or anybody else might say, but what Ashbel Green and someone else might not say and what that really could mean. It's, a, it's an interesting process. It is sometimes a very imprecise process. It's the, it's the, the I think, the intersection of documentation and, and imagination. And sometimes, I think very frequently, uh, it's very useful to look at historical documents, look at what we call the evidence, but ask questions about it. Very, very true. You noted that Stockton left her books and papers to the son of a close friend, and the contents and whereabouts to this day are unknown, yet you traced one of the books that she owned. How did you find it? I found it absolutely with great luck and help, I'll have to say. Um, yeah, first of all, I want to go back to your original comment. She did have rather an extensive collection of books and papers because she in her will, which is written in 1862, she leaves them all uh, to her friend, her fellow missionary, Charles Samuel Stewart. I don't know where those books are, and I don't know where the papers are, but I know she had a very extensive library in her house. And I do say in my own book that Betsy Stockton was not just literate, she was intellectual. Uh, everything about her, every person who writes about her talks about the strength of her intellect and the breadth of her, uh, her intellect. But I don't know where all of her books are. I don't know where her papers are, except for one, except for one. And this is where I got very, very lucky. I happened to be doing research the very first few months of doing research, frankly, at the American Antiquarian Society. And one morning, while I was pretty much minding my own business, the director of the American Antiquarian Society, Ellen Dunlap at the time, came by and said, you know, there's a, there's a rare book dealer down in Princeton. A man named Joe Falcone, who has a book that has Betsy Stockton's signature in the flyleaf. You might want to go take a look. And I thought, might. i got to get down there. And so I did go down to Princeton. I met with Joe Falcone, uh, has a remarkable collection of uh, rare books, most of them uh, about New Jersey. And lo and behold, there he had up in his third floor office this book that had been inscribed, Betsy Stockton, on the flyleaf, her own signature. And believe me, I did check out the signature for it with her handwriting. It was, it was hers. And I thought, well, that's, that's just striking. There I was holding a book in my hands that she had held in her hands some 200 years ago. It was really one of those magical moments that you sometimes have a historian, as a historian, when you can hold something that has a direct contact, a direct 
relationship to the person you're writing about. Wow, that is truly amazing. Yeah, and I did go back. I I, I held the book, uh, and then I went back to the American Antiquarian Society and read it. It was a book by a man named Thomas Brannigan, an early 19th century Irish-American author. It was called The Flowers of Literature. It was, I confess, not a terribly, in my mind, a terribly good book. It was a compendium of biblical history and world history and uh, geography and that kind of thing, a kind of useful reference work. But I tried to hold it and read it and think about it as Betsy Stockton might have. And one thing really stood out to me. Brannigan writes a preface to his book and is directed to three groups, to parents, to children, and to teachers. And the parents, he says, of course, it's your job to take care of your children's souls. It's your job to raise your children right. To children, he says, you're born to die, which is always the good message to send to kids, I think. But to teachers, he makes a much more positive, takes a much more positive approach. He says, it's your job. It's your job uh, to educate children and to help save them, that you have a very important role in life. You have a very important role in society. And Betsy Stockton has this book about in the late 18-teens, about the time she's beginning to think about becoming a teacher. And I think that message to teachers might very much have resonated with her at a time when she's beginning to figure out her own direction in life. She didn't have any role models for being a teacher. She never went to school a day in her life. She was completely self-educated, reading the books in Ashville Green's office and whatever else she could get. But at some point, she decides that she wants to be a teacher. She wants to be a teacher for black children. That's not a very good option in Princeton, New Jersey at the time. Uh, and yet she begins to think, well, where else can I do this? How else can I do it? And that becomes, I think, the beginning of her missionary activity, her desire to become a missionary and to leave the United States for another place. But I, I will sense. say one thing else that I think strikes me, too, about Betsy Stockton and this particular book. Uh, you know, when you write your name in a book, you write, write your signature on the flyleaf, you're saying, this book is mine. This book is mine. And I think that's a remarkable act of possession by a young woman who had been, frankly, considered possession herself. And for her to have this book, however she got it, whether it was a gift or whether she bought it, I don't know. Joe Falcone doesn't know. But there in that title page, in that flyleaf, is her signature, Betsy Stockton. And that, to me, is just one of the most uh, striking bits of this physical evidence I've, I've seen in this work. I agree. That is amazing. And you mentioned that point a few moments ago, the ownership that she had over the book, especially as a person herself, she had been owned, which I want to talk about Betsy Stockton and her enslavement in the antebellum north to Asheville Green. Can you discuss what that means? Well, first of all, uh, the antebellum north was uh, a place and a time when slavery was still very much alive in the United States. And I want to underscore that because I think far too many people, including, including some of my former students, 
would always assume that slavery was an issue for the South and the North was the land of freedom. And of course, that's not the case. That wasn't the case. Uh, Betsy Stockton lived in two northern states, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, both of which had provided for gradual abolition. But it was very gradual abolition. And in, in New Jersey, the law was passed in 1804, basically said if you're born after July 4th, 1804, you can be emancipated after you're 21 years old if you're uh, a man and 25 years old if you're a woman. Uh, it was a long period of what one might call uh, delay before emancipation had taken place. But what was happening with those gradual abolition laws in place, I think many slaveholders and enslaved people began to rethink their relationship, uh, to think that somehow this institution is on its way out. And Ashford Green, I think, was one of those. He was never happy never easy with being a slaveholder. Uh, Betsy was given to him, uh, given to his household. He didn't ask for her. He didn't want her, probably didn't really need her. He was a Presbyterian pastor. And when she came to his household, she was a very young child. But there she was. There she was. And at some point, and again, I have to be a little bit careful here about exactly when that point is, I think by 1810. Uh, he emancipates her from slavery. Um, in the 1810 census for uh, Philadelphia, he's listed with his white family members and two other people called uh, other free persons, which refers to black people. One of them, uh, I'm pretty certain, was Betsy. But he still keeps her under his authority. Uh, he becomes president of Princeton, the college in New Jersey in 1812, takes her back to Princeton with him. And then a year later, uh, sells three years of her time to another Presbyterian pastor down in southern New Jersey. And so even though she is technically, I think, not enslaved, uh, he still has the power and exercises the power to sell three years of her time. And so she goes down to Gloucester County, New Jersey, spends from 1813 to 1816 there with another Presbyterian pastor, Nathaniel Todd. And then comes back to Princeton uh, and joins the church, joins the, the, the Presbyterian church. Uh, I think really quite a transformed person by about age, I'll say she's 18 at the time. But slavery is very much alive and well in New Jersey. In fact, uh, I came across an ad for uh, a, a sale of an enslaved young woman, 19 years old. Uh, this is in 1816, the time that Betsy Stockton comes back to Princeton. And she can read in the newspapers, anybody else can, that there's this young woman who's being uh, put up for sale uh, by a member, frankly, of the Princeton faculty. So that's the world she lives in. She can be uh, reasonably uh, free herself. She can join the church. But the specter of slavery is still very much around her and around that, that community. Right. And how, looking at the issue of slavery and gradual abolition, how is that tied to the racism in what some always suppose is the, as you said, antebellum North? There's this idea that you don't have these practices in the North versus where you go deeper 
below the Mason-Dixon line in the South. Um, looking specifically at the community of Princeton during this period. Well, Princeton is an interesting place, uh, a fascinating place in many regards, but it's always been considered this placid, very pleasant, semi-rural college town. Still is, frankly. But Princeton was a community that uh, embodied or preserved racism not very far under the surface. Uh, there had been a law passed in Princeton, a local ordinance, as early as 1813, that black people, both enslaved and free, could not congregate at night. Again, that kind of anxiety about black people being together. Uh, black people in town held, for the most part, only menial jobs, quite often as servants or employees of the college uh, or household servants, or for women uh, primarily as uh, the occupation was called washer and ironer. Most men were considered to be laborers. That's not uncommon, but what I think really makes Princeton's a bit distinct at the time is the uh, what I call the southern accent of the town. The College of New Jersey, which now Princeton University, decided early on in the 18th century, in fact, that it really couldn't compete with Harvard and Yale for students in the north. And so it developed a southern recruitment strategy, going down to the south, especially Virginia, to recruit uh, young men, young boys, frankly, they're only teenagers, uh, to come to Princeton. And by the middle of the 19th century, about half the student body from Princeton at the College of New Jersey was from below the Mason-Dixon line. And I think the presence of those Southern students had an effect upon the college, uh, the, the culture of the college, and I think it, it expanded also to the community, the, the town itself. Princeton was a town in which uh, anti-slavery had to be kept under wraps. There's one incident that I recount in the book where an anti-slavery advocate comes to town and is meeting with some people in the black community. He's trying to sell subscriptions to William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator. And a bunch of students, most of them Southern students, get wind of this. They come and uh, take the man forcibly out of the house, uh, threaten to uh, subject him to the law, they say, the law of Judge Lynch, uh, and they run him out of town. And there are numerous incidents that I recount, uh, and even more some that I don't recount, about Southern students, college students, harassing black people on the street, sometimes verbally, sometimes physically. Uh, and I think that Princeton takes on uh, almost unwittingly uh, that Southern attitude toward black people. Not that, it, that, that there were not hostile racial ideas in the North already, but Princeton does become a very southern-seeming community. People call it the uh, northernmost school for southern students, and I think there's there's much to that. Uh, and so, it's the uh, the effect of the college, and actually also uh, the Princeton Theological Seminary, which was also partly founded by Ashbel Green, uh, that has a that has a an effect upon the racial attitudes in the town. I will just say one thing uh, rather quickly. Princeton, both the college and the theological seminary, become centers of colonization activity. 
And I know a lot of people thought that colonization, the idea of sending people to Africa, black people to Africa, free and enslaved. And they used to say, they'd always say back to Africa, but many of these people had never been to Africa in the first place. But many white people thought this was a rather benign solution to the race situation in the United States, that if black people couldn't get, uh, uh, couldn't expect equality, they could be sent to Africa and they could create a new society. Well, uh, many white people subscribed to that, but after, in the beginning, after a short beginning, most black people rejected that. And yet, the strength of colonization, uh, the, uh, the institutional background of colonization stemmed from Princeton and remained uh, active in Princeton up until the time of the Civil War, frankly. Wow. That is really amazing when you think about it. Um, this is the environment in which Betsy Stockton grew, in which she thrived, as one would say, during this period. So she had, as you said, you're right, the term, the odyssey. She had a lot of outside forces that she was battling every step of the way. And living in this particular environment, I, in some ways, believe it really shaped who she was and what she was fighting against during that time. You mentioned that she was a member of the Presbyterian Church for over 30 years, and she was dismissed. Um, how did this happen, and what does that also say, going back to that environment in which she was living, race relations in the North during this time? Well, yeah, she was a member of uh, Princeton Presbyterian Church. It was the main church in town. It was a church that was right adjacent to the college. It's where all the members of the faculty, most of the students, and all the members of the theological seminary uh, went to worship. It had about close to 100 black people in the congregation at the time Betsy Stockton joined, both enslaved people and free people. And I know this because the church records will say, they'll list a name of somebody and say, slave of Mr. Johnson, or they don't say enslaved. But it was a, a sizable portion of the congregation that was black. But then on July 6th, 1835, something rather striking happened. It was an accident, frankly. Uh, the uh, July 4th celebration went on a little bit too long. Somebody shot off a skyrocket. It landed on the roof of the church, caught fire, and burned the Presbyterian church to the ground. And that was it. The next day, it was just a smoldering ruin. But in the process of rebuilding, in the process of creating a new church for the congregation, the white members apparently decided they would like the black members to go elsewhere, physically elsewhere, to form a separate congregation. And this, I have to underscore, was a choice made, a decision made by the white leadership of the church, not by black people. In fact, the black members of the church, I think, wanted to stay in the main Presbyterian church. They engaged in conversations, negotiations with the white leadership for a number of years. But finally, uh, they had to go away. They were not allowed back into the church. So they had to form a separate congregation. Uh, and Betsy Stockton was part of that congregation. In fact, uh, when they finally signed papers of dismissal from the main Presbyterian church. There's a list of 92 people who signed those dismissal certificates, and Betsy Stockton was the first name on the list. 
Uh, why? I'm not sure. It wasn't alphabetical, uh, but I think it said something about her significance in that black community. So anyway, the black people form uh, a separate church. The Witherspoon Street Presbyterian Church is now called. It's still one of the main religious institutions in town and a very, I will say, very good and welcoming place for visitors like me. But they had to be a separate congregation, and they were not a breakaway congregation. I say they're a pushaway congregation. That the white people made it very clear they wanted the black people out and in their own church. And so Betsy Stockton, as one of the founders, as one of the uh, builders of that congregation, plays a very important role. And Witherspoon Street Presbyterian Church goes on to be one of the main institutions in the black community from the 1840s on to, frankly, uh, to the present day. Wow, that is truly, you know, to be pushed out of a church that you've been a member of for 30 years, that's a lot, you know, but yet, once again, she picks herself up and she starts anew. She starts anew. That leads me to the next point I want to discuss, which was, which is, you also use the term education in your title as well. Your book sheds light on education, especially for black people this time, which is very limited. And Stockton, in many ways, she sought to change those opportunities. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, and there again, I go back to the use of the term education in the title, and it has two meanings or two senses. One is Betsy Stockton's own education, the education that she largely provided herself. And again, she did not go to school. Ashley Green was not inclined to send black uh, children to school. But somehow, somehow, living in his household, and I think working with one of his sons, she became a reader. She became a very voracious reader. And she became a very sophisticated reader. So that by the time uh, she was in her around 20, uh, one of the young uh Princeton Theological Seminary students who knew her talked about her breadth of reading and her breadth of education. And again, this is why I say that she was not just literate, she was intellectual. Uh, And I think that she had done that for herself. Uh, She was really quite a remarkable uh, self-made intellect, if I can call that. And so on the one hand, I look at Betsy Stockton as an educated person, someone who could recite passages from the Bible, from John Milton, from all sorts of literary sources. But then she becomes an edu- uh, a person who provides education. Uh, and again, she sets out early in life to provide education for people of color. Uh, in the beginning, that's not possible for her in a town like Princeton. And so she goes to Hawaii, the Sandwich Islands, as they call it at the time, and becomes a teacher for Hawaiian people. Uh, and what's different about Betsy Stockton, what she does that nobody had done before, is that she reaches out to ordinary people. Most of the missionaries had been educating the Hawaiian leadership, the elites, and their children, but Betsy Stockton begins to provide education for everybody at all levels of society. And it's only a two-year period of her life, but I think a really transformational one. She really becomes a teacher. She becomes committed to teaching. She understands what 
teaching can be. And so when she comes back to the United States after her two and a half years in Hawaii, she winds up being a teacher again, first in Philadelphia at an infant school, which is a fascinating chapter on its own. And sorry, I don't have time to go into it uh, at this point. But she provides uh, leadership in a school for young black children, and I think also for their parents. The school is not just an educational facility where the kids can learn to read and write and do a little bit of arithmetic. It's also, I think, a social facility. And it's a place where parents can come each day to bring their children to drop them off, but to see other parents. And I try again to imagine the conversation, as we all know from school drop-off. It's a time when parents get together and talk about not just their children, but what's going on in, in their community, what's going on in the school. And I think just by running this infant school, by keeping it open, and she has somewhere between 70 and 100 children uh, between the ages of two and five. And you can perhaps imagine what that's like <laughs> pedagogically and, and personally for someone. But by all reports, she does a remarkably good job. Uh, the school seems to flourish, and when she leaves uh, in 1830, uh, it begins to slide a bit in terms of its enrollment. People really seem to believe in her. And I think the evidence is that she is a remarkably good teacher. She goes to Princeton uh, in 1833. She starts a school. Uh, she's the, the founder of the, the town's uh, sole public school for black children. And again, that's a job she does throughout the rest of her life. She also teaches on Sunday. Uh, she's one of the women in the Witherspoon Street Presbyterian Church who operates a Sunday school. And the Sunday school, I think, is an interesting institution. It's not just uh, an opportunity for providing the rather common Presbyterian pieties. But she's teaching literacy. She's teaching literacy. First to children, and then later on, she begins, begins teaching to adults as well. But I think she understands, as many black people understand, that it's not just the three R's, that literacy and numeracy are very important tools of survival in the black community, tools that had been denied them by white people by and large, and tools they needed for some attempt at maintaining or gaining uh, some measure of equality uh, with white people. And so I think that education, which quite often we tend these days to take for granted that everybody goes to school, everybody learns to read and write, do arithmetic, that certainly wasn't the case in the 19th century, anywhere in the United States. Uh, and I think it had not been the case in Princeton until she came and started the school. Wow, that is, and it's amazing in the sense of what she was able to do without being formally taught herself. Yet, probably, I think that may have been part of her inspiration for teaching others, because she lacked those opportunities herself. So she wanted to give those to others, so especially children, so that they have those formative years that they are receiving the education that is not as you know, provided by the white community at this time. There, is, there are very few, I would say, schools per se for black children within this period. Now, you call 
Betsy Stockton's desire to educate as a radical act. And we are starting to speak a little bit about that right now. At any time during this, does she come into conflict with the white community? Or were they more understanding of what she was doing? Well, she doesn't come into direct conflict with the white community per se. I think that, frankly, the white community is very happy to let Betsy Stockton run a small school for black children. Uh, and they paid very little attention to her or to what she was doing. I think, though, that, that teaching, and again, I have to uh, underscore this, teaching, which is something that we take for granted, that we frankly do, uh, is a radical act in a cir- circumstance in which education is being denied people. Uh, white people did not want black people to be educated. Uh, that was not on their uh, social or pedagogical agenda. And yet, by doing that, by creating a school, running a school, and running a successful school for any number of years, uh, Betsy Stockton, I think, plays a very important role. And I call it radical in the sense that she's doing something that most white people don't want done. And I think that doing so in the context of Princeton makes it especially striking. Princeton is a community that at the time, and still does, of course, pride itself on education. And at the time Betsy Stockton came to Princeton in the 1830s, there was, of course, the college, there was a theological seminary, but there was also no end of private and parochial schools. And parents in Princeton who could afford to tended to put their children in private schools or church-run schools. They paid very little attention as a community to public schools. In fact, the public schools in the town always suffered, always seemed to be languishing. And yet, Stockton's creating a school for black children uh, and at a uh, public school uh, was, I think, a very important um, institution-building activity for her, just as teaching the Sunday school was a significant activity. There was no direct conflict, at least that I've determined, except there was one, I think, striking moment. In 1858, the town of Princeton, which had never done much to support public education, whites and blacks alike, because there was so much emphasis on public on, on private and parochial schools, the town of Princeton finally a- allocates some money to build a new school for white children, and they set aside $6,000, $1,000 to buy some land, $5,000 to build a building, and it's going to be one of the best schools in the state, they say, but that's for white children. In the same year, 1858, they set aside $50, less than 1% of, that, of the amount for the white school, $50 to make some repairs to the black school the Betsy Stockton School. And so in terms of separate and unequal, there's a very striking indication right there of what the town of Princeton was all about. Wow, that is a very striking example that you provided to readers right now, just to think about the inadequate educational opportunities that would give black children, when you think monetary value, how little the white community actually valued black education. Um, well, and the, the thing about a dollar amounts is you can count them. <laughs> and, right. And you can see exactly where the money goes. 
uh, and in this case, fifty dollars to uh, make some repairs in a school is nothing compared to what they're doing for white children. Wow. You, in your book, you describe Betsy Stockton as a pillar of the black community and the bridge to the white. What do you mean by that? Well, I'll talk about the pillar part first. I think she was a pillar of the black community. Betsy Stockton uh, never married, never had children of her own. And why, we can all speculate. It might have been a question of her uh, commitment to her sense of mission as a teacher. It might have been a question of not wanting to uh, be involved and under the authority of a man, a husband. It might have been a question of her sexuality. It could have been some combination of three. I, I don't know. But she remained unmarried throughout her life. Uh, she lived alone in a house uh, in the black community, uh, just off first on Weatherspoon Street, then on Quarry Street. And in 1860, when the census taker came around to town and interviews everybody door to door, he goes to Betsy Stockton's house, uh, determines that she is, as he puts it, mulatto, probably his uh, determination rather than her admission. Uh, he says he notes that she has $400 worth of property, which is quite a bit for somebody in the black community. But also he, he lists under her occupation, teacher, teacher. She's the only black person in Princeton who, who carries that title. And again, most other black people are in comparatively uh, lower jobs, laborers, washerwomen, that kind of thing. And I think Betsy's doctrine's prominence, both in the church and in the school, uh, gives her a kind of, um, I, I will say, a kind of matriarchal status in the town, in the black community. And I think there are some members of the white community in Princeton who recognize that. They see uh, the role she's playing. They see the significance she has among black people. And they can uh, acknowledge it, perhaps even respect it. And again, uh, uh, Betsy Stockton has uh, interesting lifelong relationships with a number of prominent white people. Uh, Asheville Green, of course. Uh, Asheville Green is the one who uh, has her in his household, but he remains, I'll call it not a friend and ally throughout her life, throughout his life. He dies in 1848 and he's buried right across the street from uh, her house. But she's also very close friends with Charles Samuel Stewart, uh, her fellow missionary, uh, with whom she uh, goes to Hawaii, and his wife, Harriet Stewart, who dies in 1830, and their son, Charles Seaforth Stewart. And it's to them, uh, to Charles Stewart and his son, Seaforth Stewart, that she leaves most of her belongings. Uh, she leaves a dress, her clothing, to uh, a friend of hers, a woman in the black community, a, a washerwoman. But I think she maintains some friendships, strong friendships, with uh, a few white people. And I don't think that's uh, exceptional. Actually, it is rather exceptional, but I think it doesn't in any way detract from her status, her commitment to uh, the black community. I will say, though, that when Betsy Stockton dies in 1865, uh, her, her choice is not to be buried in Princeton, but to be buried in Cooperstown, New York, where the Stewart family plot is. And that's where she, uh, her remains are today. Uh, they've just found and re, uh, repositioned her headstone, her tombstone. 
Uh, and so you can go to the Lakewood Seminary and, uh, Cemetery in Cooperstown, New York, and you can see the Betsy Doctor tombstone. Wow. So he did have a remarkable connection with the Stewart family. I guess the time that she spent going to Hawaii and the journey that they they developed a very close relationship from that. Well, yeah, and you can imagine they're, they're on a whale ship, of all things, a group of 18 missionaries and about 20 uh, sailors on this whale ship, leaving New Haven, Connecticut in 1822 and spending five months at sea to get to Hawaii. And the relationships that one might develop during that time uh, can be very, very strong. And her relationship with the Stuarts, I think, is remarkably strong. In fact, she helps deliver the first Stuart child on board the ship in April of 1823, just before they get to Hawaii. And that closeness with the Stuarts uh, is something that I find um, striking. The, the friendship she has with Harriet Stewart until the time Harriet dies is very, very important. And I think as we think about, look at the world of friendships in the 19th century, the Annabellum era, about which there's a good deal of writing these days. Uh, this one that uh, crosses, I won't say boundaries, but lines of gender and race is to me, I think, a very uh, significant one. I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that. Professor Nobles, when you think about Betsy Stockton's life and everything that she endured, what do you hope readers will take away from the book as they are reading? What do you hope they can learn from her experiences? Well, I think I'd have to say there are two things I would hope readers would take away. Uh, the first would be just an understanding and appreciation of Betsy Stockton as a person, as a historical figure, uh, and as, a, uh, as I think uh, a figure more important, more significant than uh, she's been uh, accorded. But also, I think I'd like people to think about the larger history in which she does figure, uh, the history of, of race relations, American racism, both South and, and again, I underscore score in the North. Um, and I think that Stockton is in her own way part of the story of resistance to that racism. Uh, we always think uh, about people like Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth, those figures who are in the, in the pantheon of anti-racist uh, activity in the antebellum era, and they deserve their place there. Let me uh, say that for sure. But I think Betsy Stockton is a different kind of person. Uh, she's not an eloquent speaker, or at least she doesn't make speeches that I've heard of. Um, if whatever she wrote has been lost to us. Um, she does not travel around uh, as an uh, anti-slavery advocate. She spends the second half of her life, as I said, from 1833 to 1865, living in one place, Princeton, New Jersey, and doing one thing, building institutions in that town's black community. Uh, and yet I think that's important. I think that's important. It's another form of dealing with racism in American society. She spends years of her life doing that kind of grassroots from the bottom up work, the day-to-day -day work of making sure that black institutions uh, are created and survive. And I think that it's important 
for us, all of us, to remember people like that and to honor people like that, not just in the past, but also in the present. I look at Betsy Stockton as one of those very uh, diligent, committed resistors. And I think, as I say in the book, her persistence in Princeton is a form of resistance. The fact that she just keeps doing what she does for the black community. And yet, I think also Betsy Stockton is by no means alone. There are other people like her uh, in the Annabellum era, North and South. Other people who have stories that need to be discovered, stories that need to be told. And I think that the opportunities for historians, for scholars, to find those stories and to tell those stories, as difficult though they might be to tell, because again, as I mentioned earlier, the archival gaps, uh, it's an effort worth taking on. And I would hope that uh, people in, in uh, universities, students, grad students, other people, could read about Betsy Stockton and say, okay, there's one story. I might find another one to write in a similar time. Because I think that, you know, we need to find more and more uh, narratives about people who do significant work, even if the work is not uh, highly visible, not prominent. People who are not, I will say, not yet famous. Uh, and the question is not gaining fame, but I think gaining recognition. And that's what I hope I can provide for Betsy Stockton in her life. It's what I hope other scholars can provide for other people as they look at those lives. There are many, many lives to be studied, many, many lives to be written, and I would be very happy to see other scholars, other historians, make the most of that. I would say, Dr. Nobles, having read the book myself, you were very successful in helping Betsy Stockton gain some recognition. Dr. Nobles, I want to thank you for joining me today to discuss your fascinating and well-needed new book on Betsy Stockton's readers. Please go out and pick up a copy of The Education of Betsy Stockton and Odyssey of Slavery and Freedom to learn about this amazing woman who, as Dr. Nobles correctly notes, is an unsung hero. Thank you, Dr. Nobles. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk always about Betsy Stockton and this morning to talk to you. Thank you, Ms. Anderson. Thank you.